Hey, this morning we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. 4, 9 through 12. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you don't have a Bible, you can find one uh, in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front of it. And that's going to let you know how to locate the book of 1 Thessalonians. And then as we make our way through this morning, the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. Again, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 9 through 12. You know, as I think about For the City and, and uh, you know, it's, it's this amazing opportunity to go out and to engage our community and, and to do that with, with other churches. Uh, when I first moved to... Uh, I, I called it Greenville at that time, but Greenville, um, it still just feels wrong. I mean, etymologically, it just feels wrong. But I first moved here, and I, I begin to have conversations with people and, and just noticed, I mean, how many churches were in our city. You, you drive up Wesley Street, you go north of Park, I mean, just churches everywhere. And and in fact, something that people told me, which is absolutely not true, but you say, do you know that Greenville's in the Guinness Book of Records? I say, really? Like, yeah, most churches per capita. And I said, I I don't actually think that's true, friend. But the fact that I heard it from so many people, and, and, and that it would be something that wouldn't just be immediately dismissed by people, says something about a joint recognition that there are far too many churches for how much poverty we have. That there are far too many churches for how much abuse that we see. That there are far too many churches for the inequality that we witness. That there are far too many churches for the unrestrained impact of sin in our community. And what I noticed as I kind of looked around is it, it seemed to be this siloed approach. And so the Baptists did their thing and were so good it doing our thing, and so our thing is the thing that happens just in these four walls. So for us, it's 6801 Wesley. For Highland Terrace, it's up off the loop. For Authentic Life, it's just over there. For Cross Point, it's just south of 30. So we're really good at contributing to things and being a part of big things globally, but we're really terrible being a part of anything locally together. I mean, that just kind of broke my heart as I looked at that. So I began to go to lunch with a number of African-American pastors and begin to share with them my heart of what it would look like if we could all come together. Like, what would it look like if we all committed together to do a work for the Salvation Army, if we all committed to do a work together for Rafa, if we all committed to do a work together for the Hope Center, if we all committed to do a work together for Fish, or you just kind of name your nonprofit, if we all did a work together for the people of our city. And this idea began to germinate, and I think it began to germinate because it was something God was collectively doing in the hearts of the people of this community, not the heart of, one, of the people of one church. And how paltry would that be if God only captivated our hearts? But I think God began to captivate the hearts of many of the people across this city in many different churches, Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, Bible church, home church, what? I mean, you talk about, never mind, let's, let's, just the number of people you could offend is so quickly adding up. But as I think about this, and, and we're kind of moving through this, we've survived COVID, and 
Uh, we had a smaller gathering that year. We had some more uh, the next year. And so this is, you know, a couple of years post-COVID. And, and I begin to think, kind of, what does that look like for us? And, and what gives us the legitimacy to go out and engage? And, like, what gives us, in some sense, the right to go out and engage? What gives people in our community, when they see us, to say, oh, this makes sense. It's the green shirts. It's June again. It makes sense that they're out here doing this. Paul gives us the reason. He gives us the validation. Essentially, Paul makes this argument. If we can't get it right inside the church, then we have no business being at work outside the church. Listen, if we can't get it right in here, if we can't love one another well in here, we have no business trying to go out there and being engaged in a community. It would be like knowing nothing of dancing, knowing nothing of fixing engines, knowing nothing of being uh, supposed to be an expert in some sport, and you go out there and you're like, follow me as I teach you the foxtrot. I don't really know how to do it, but I watched a YouTube video 30 seconds ago. Let me teach you. I I I see your car's broken down on the side of the road. Uh, What I think it may be is your flux capacitor has lost time juice. And we need to add more. I think your blinker fluid is low. Can I add some more blinker fluid for you? I had a friend in college that fell for that. Uh, Time after time, she kept going to different mechanics. I think my blinker fluid is low. They told me my flux capacitor is just not working. I say, tell them especially when you hit about 88, it's not, not kicking in. It's like we in some sense get this. But look at what the Apostle Paul says. Now concerning brotherly love. And then he ends with the idea that you may walk properly before outsiders. If we can't engage rightly and have a right understanding of what brotherly love is, we have no business being involved and being invested in our community. Would you join with me this morning as we commit to discover the right understanding of brotherly love and the right application in extending his kingdom here in Greenville, Texas, and beyond. Amen? Let's read the passage together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Paul writes, and he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers to do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Why? So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning as we open your word, recognize that we are a people, in some sense, like we find ourselves coming into this place at odds with who you have called us to be and at odds of who we see ourselves as. We want to do an amazing work in this community. We want to work in cooperation with other brothers and sisters. But let let that work first begin in our hearts towards one another. And so God, this morning we come into this place with sin. We come into this place with sorrow and doubt. And God, I just pray that as you write about these Thessalonians, that they've been taught by God, so too we have your spirit in this place. That your spirit would make right application to our heart. 
And then our right response of conviction, our right response of encouragement, our right response before you would bring you glory and honor. God, we are people who need you. Our need for you does not diminish, but it only increases as we, over the course of our lives, come to recognize the replete sinfulness from which you rescued us and from which the enemy seeks to constantly entangle us. You have ransomed us, you have rescued us, and the enemy constantly keeps to keep reminding us of who we once were, calling us back to the enjoyment of the flesh, calling us not to forsake all sin, but calling us to forsake that which is visible, that which is obvious, that which can't be hidden. But you deal, you deal in the hiddenness of our hearts. You deal in the quiet places. You deal in the areas of which we would rather not confess, rather not unearth. And so, Father, this morning I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would do a work of revealing, that you would do a work of unearthing, and that, God, we would meet you and encounter you and, and feel ourselves experiencing your forgiveness, your redemption. Your word tells us that if we confess our sins, your son Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This morning we come to you as a people in need of confession, needing to walk out repentance, turning from our sin, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. We want to be cleansed. We want to be made new, especially as we turn our hearts at the end of this time to take your supper together. So God, would you speak to us in these moments? Would you cause us to reflect? Would you cause us to rejoice? Father, we submit this time to you. We ask your blessings upon our mind, our ability to understand and apply. We ask that your spirit would flow freely in this place. God, would you be with us at this time? In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> so look here. Verse 9, Paul opens up, and, and so he has a twist in some sense. And so he's been going through, and he's been talking to them, uh, in some sense, about sexual immorality. And he's moved through. He's calling him to, he says, God has called you not to impurity, verse 7, but to holiness, we had some application of that. And then in verse 9, he begins to talk about what that's going to look like within the life of the body. And so he turns to this subject, of which many of us probably think we're somewhat experts, the subject of brotherly love. Now, as Paul writes to this in the first century, they don't have this built-in understanding over a couple thousand years of this is just kind of how churches are. And so it's brotherly love. We're brother and sister so-and-so, which is absolutely my least favorite thing to be called, Brother Matt. And so you can say that for Minister Appreciation Month. Justin loves it. And so you get into the middle of it. In the first century, Philadelphia, brotherly love was something that only existed at the level of individual family. So within my family, I have an older brother. He's six years older than I am. And so brotherly love is what he owed me, and brotherly love is what I owed him. Now, if you witnessed us growing up, you wouldn't see a lot of that. You'd see brotherly torture. But nevertheless... So when the Christian church comes along, what we recognize is that Jesus is the firstborn among many, that he is our elder brother, that we are adopted as sons and daughters of the king. And so what we find in the middle of this is that God has made you and me, inasmuch as his spirit indwells us, the sacrifice of Christ covers us, he has made you and me to be sons and daughters of the king. So then, 
taking from this first century device, we owe it to one another to engage in brotherly love. So the question becomes, what in the world does that mean? What does that look like? You know, it's helpful for us that the Apostle Paul defines this for us in Romans 12. It's the only other place Paul uses this word. And he uses it in a really particular way. Now, you may think brotherly love is just kind of being kindly disposed to someone. And so I see the Harrisons out, I see the Stutzmans out, and, and their tires flat on the side of the road. We all know that they're headed down to Southern Junction to go dancing. And so I see them, they're all duded up, they got their boots on, they're wearing spurs, I don't know why. And so they're, they're there, it's this really dangerous version of the boot scooting boogie, right? And so they're there, and I pull over because I'm engaged in brotherly love, and I offer to change their tire. Well, that's kindness. That's not brotherly love, as Paul is disclosing. And so maybe you think, okay, brotherly love is really tied into Christian fellowship, and so it's having people over to our home. It's finding somebody in the need of diapers, and it's giving them to them. It's finding somebody who needs baby formula right now, and there's this great shortage of it, and so it's giving that to them. No, that's charity. That's charity. That's, I mean, that is a form of love, but Paul describes brotherly love in a radically different way. Look at Romans 12, 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Paul says, let there be no hypocrisy in your love. Now, what does that mean? It means our actions towards our brothers and sisters need to be consistent. He calls us to consistency. Hypocrisy is being known one way and engaging in another, saying one thing and doing another. Paul says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hate, detest, have no place for it. Hold fast to what is good. And then in the middle of these things, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. So in some sense, to engage in brotherly love is to engage in honesty with one another. And if we see sin in someone else's life, is to absolutely hate and detest that sin. To think that that sin in their life should be removed, stripped. It should have no place in them. Peter, in describing this same thing in 1 Peter 1.22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for what purpose? For sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so brotherly love does two things. Brotherly love stirs up obedience and drives out sin. Brotherly love stirs up obedience, righteousness, and it drives out sin. So what does that look like within the application of our lives? Number one, number one, you cannot be said to be engaging in brotherly love if you are condoning sin in someone's life. You cannot be said to be engaging in brotherly love, sisterly love, if you are condoning sin in someone else's life. And so there are those of us in here that, oh man, your heart is singing right now because you are so ready not to condone some stuff and you are already just lighting your tongue on fire. I mean, so you got the hairspray on it, you got, you know, whatever it is, you're just ready to hit it with a lighter and go, nah, la, 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 and just pour out fire and venom on someone. That's not what he said. It's still love. But what do you hate in them? You abhor what is evil. And so there's no right application in this that sees us moving 
to condemning the sinner. There's no place for this. And so what you see in them, in essence, is there is this cancer, and if it's not removed, if it's not cut out, burned out, or poisoned, this cancer will metastasize, and it will spread over the course of their body, and spreading from their body, it will move like a contagion through the entire church body. You cannot condone the sin in their life. You cannot condemn them for having sin. This is what we do. We call them to a fresh embrace of the Savior. We call them to this fresh experience of the Savior. We say to them time and time again, we read to them verses, as I read just a moment ago out of 1 John, this idea that if we confess our sin to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Listen to this. It begins with an if. If you do not move to confess your sins, the sin grows, it hardens, it creates this hard shell around you and in your life, and you will accommodate its presence because you come to enjoy it, to love it, and to find it to be normal. But if, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what do we do? We find you guys in the middle of your, your escapade headed to southern... I don't know why I chose this place. I'm wishing it had been something a whole lot more tawdry and awful. They're running drugs to Quinlan. This is like we all know that when they say they're headed there to dance, what they really mean in that is they're headed to Quinlan to deal meth. We're going to talk later. Where's Nathan Baker? Would somebody ask him to come into the room? It's so because I know this about... I should have picked somebody better. Uh, because I know this about you, it wouldn't be loving for me to allow this to continue. But in love, I come to you and say, do you recognize what you're doing? Do you recognize the sin that you're engaging in? I know you just want to line your pockets, and, and you're not thinking about the devastation that what you're doing is going to bring to somebody else. And that's what most sin does. We think that sin lives in a silo of our own heart, that lies live in a silo that doesn't infect, it doesn't impact anybody else. But what he calls us to is to abhor, to hate the sin in one another, and to draw that sin out like the poison it is in their hearts and in their lives. We don't condone sin, we don't condemn the sinner, but we call them to a fresh embrace once again of the Savior. Now, as Paul looks at this church there in Thessalonica, he says, man, you guys are doing this so well. You have no need for us to write to you anymore about this. In fact, he tells them, he says, you yourselves have been taught by God to engage this way. Well, look at what Jesus said in John 14 and 26 when he was speaking to the disciples. It begins to sound familiar. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. All that I have said to you. John reflecting on these words years later in 1 John 2 and 27 said it this way, but the anointing that you receive from him, it abides in you, it stays, it's still there. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. So this is the good news for you this morning. If you are a follower and a believer of Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit is constantly at work in your heart, teaching you and impressing you and leading you to walk in the truth. 
And so what we engage in, what we recognize, is that you and I are indeed in the middle of a war where our enemy wants to go to us, and he wants to see us sidetracked. He wants us to see us follow him. He wants us to live in comfort. He wants us to live in the lie. And he wants to have us say our sin's not such a big deal. It's private. It's hidden. It's secret. It's safe. It doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be on earth exposed. It can still sit in there and dwell peaceably. Holy Spirit's at work in you, and it's just needling, and it's needling, and it's needling. Occasionally, his Holy Spirit gets at work in Brad's heart, and Brad comes along, and he joins me in treating the four of you. Walk away from your sin. Listen, I don't know what your individual sin is this morning. I don't know what, in what ways you're struggling. I don't know in what, which doubts you have this morning, which marriages in this place are holding together by the tenuous thread of public appearance. It would be an embarrassment if our marriage fell apart. That's why we're together. Are you at least curious this morning? Is there any place in you for the curiosity that you would begin to ask the Holy Spirit, what sin is there in me? Is there any curiosity that you have asking the Holy Spirit, what would you refine and do in me? Let us move past condemning. Let us move towards this curiosity which would see us neither be condemned, but would see us once again embrace the call of the Savior to receive once again his saving grace. He says, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. His Holy Spirit is at work in us, teaching us to love one another well. Teaching us to engage in brotherly love. Now, if you've been in very many churches for very long, you'll recognize that this is a decidedly difficult thing to do. Why? Well, that's a whole separate sermon and a whole lot of therapy with Carolyn in the back. It's difficult, but it's still the call. We abhor the sin in their lives. We have an unhypocritical relationship with them that will not compromise on the truth. And he tells them in excellency, he says, this is indeed what you're doing. And in fact, you do it to the brothers all across Macedonia. So this church right here in Thessalonica, it would be as if we are here at Ridgecrest, right here in the heart of Greenville, okay? And then all of a sudden, churches on the north side of town and churches all the way up over to Wolf City and up in Celeste and all the way down in Lone Oak and down into, into Cash and down into Emory, they begin to have some exposure, some experience of our overflow of brotherly love one to another. This is what he's saying. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a part of a fellowship that is so captivated, so caught up in loving one another well that 30, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles away, people are experiencing the warmth of our love for one another? This is what he's describing. He describes this in a world with no social media. He describes this in a world with no uh, email. He describes this in a world with no rotary telephones. He describes this that your love for one another, your brotherly love, abhorring what is evil, having no hypocrisy, stirring up what is good, is so replete, it's everywhere, to the point that everyone around you knows about it. People aren't talking about your conflict. People aren't talking about your new building or your plaza or your parking lot, your fourth iteration of it. 
people are talking about your love for one another. The depths to which you're willing to go to love one another according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we lean in towards. This is what we're heading towards. This is where we're going. This is what we have to desire. So Paul gives them this charge in the second half of verse 10. He says, but we urge you, brothers, even though you're doing this so well, even though 20, 30, 40, 50 miles away, people, when they talk about you, they say, have you met the believers in faith of Jesus Christ at Ridgecrest Baptist Church? Those people love one another well. It's not that they are without sin, but it's that they will not tolerate unholiness in their gathering. It's that they love one another so well that they refuse to allow sin to be the cancer that it is dwelling and living and thriving within their hearts, that they excise it, they they remove it, that they call one another over and over and over again to an experience of the Savior and His grace. He says, and I want you to do this even better. I want you to do this more and more. Listen, I don't know what type of self-satisfaction you feel that you have this morning. And maybe you are loving your brothers and sisters incredibly well. And man, I hope that's true. I hope that's true for you. I hope that's true for the people that sit on the pew with you as they look to their right and the left, that they have experienced some sense the impression of your love for them. And if it is perfect, and if it is flawless, still Paul's word rings true. Do this more and more. Do you see how he leaves us? No place of plateau. Do you know that one of the greatest dangers for a church is that they hit a place of plateau? They hit a place and they just say, like, we've arrived, we've made it, we don't need to do anything else. But constantly we encounter through the words of Paul and others, there is no plateau. There is no coasting. There is no place of arrival until we reach the other side. Amen? Are you ready to commit to doing this more and more? Some of us, that looks like taking a first step. For some of us, that looks like submitting ourselves for the first time ever to being a part of something other than yourself. Submitting yourself coming into the middle of this thing, are you really ready to do this more and more? Look at the countercultural way that Paul describes this here in verse 11. He says, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands. Now, Paul is, of course, writing this as a reaction to what we've read in Acts 17. Acts 17, Paul is there, and he's sharing the gospel. People come to faith. They're gathered in this guy Jason's house. And while they're gathered in his house, uh, the authorities come in, and they just begin to pull people out. They drag them before the authorities, and they say, these guys are overturning the whole world. In essence, they accuse them of destabilizing the Roman Empire. And so this was the accusation that when they gather together, what they're seeking to do is to undo the Roman Empire. And so because that's their experience, because that's their culture, because that's the place in which they live, Paul gives them instruction in line with being able to continue to grow and to manifest and to expand his kingdom. He doesn't want them to be seen as rabble-rousers. He doesn't want them to be seen, to be spoken of, for people to assume, in some sense, if you're to take our our society today, that you've got the Democrats, you've got the Republicans, and then you've got the Christians over here. And I don't really know which group is worse. 
Paul wanted them to be seen as something so much more than an upstart political movement that would call people away from fidelity to Rome. So he calls them, in some sense, to a, to a, a lived-out experience, experience of those things we saw witnessed to in the life of Jesus. So the first thing and the second thing he tells them are really captivated in one idea. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. What does it look like for you to aspire to something? To have some sense of just kind of internal drive and motivation. Like I want to have the most successful business. I want to be in the best shape of my life. I want to, like what does it look like for you to have this sense of, of aspiration, this sense of I want to grow and I want to do and I want to have these things. In some sense, when we do this, it, 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 it's loud. It's boisterous. It's out there and it's obvious for people to see, to witness. Look at what he says. Your aspiration needs to be to live quietly. This should really cause us to begin to question to what level we should be engaging in self-advancement. In what level should we be lauding and praising our accomplishments? Jesus who said, don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. Doesn't that sound a lot like him? Instead, we're caught up within this society that if you blow a big enough booger out of your nose, you have to take a picture of it and write a little mark that says, look how big this Thursday booger was. Does anybody have a bigger booger on Thursday? Like societally, we're caught up and captivated watching the marriage of two famous people just unfold in in just mindless insanity of hour after hour after hour. And no part of that looks like living quietly. No part of that looks like dwelling in tranquility. If there is no quietness to your life, you can absolutely miss what God's trying to do. Do you have margin for quietness? Or is your life too filled up with the busyness? I wake up at 5.30, I get up, I exercise, I go to work, I work till six, I come home, we shovel down dinner as fast as we can while the TV's on, and then some other things happen that all just kind of get lost, and then I fall asleep and I wash, rinse, repeat, and I do it over and over again. What does that look like for you? Have you intentionally created times in your day, in your week, in your month, and set and established goals for yourself that look like quietness, that look like tranquility? I remember reading about uh, Wesley's mom who would throw her apron over her head and sit down and try and get some sense of quietness, some sense of privacy all the while with children around her. I remember listening to Cinda talk about uh, creating this, this uh, glass box that she lived in all the while, this gaggle of children just... But they, their, their sounds would just bounce off of the impenetrable glass walls that she created. What does it look like you to aspire to live quietly? call to mind your own affairs isn't a call to disengage with the people around you remember Philippians 2, 3, and 4 look not only to your own interests but to the interests of others considering them more significant than yourself but what this call 
has us see and has us do and has us live. It has us move away from a preoccupation with the lives of others. There are some of us, and if you just did a search through Scripture for gossips and busybodies, it would be illuminating. It would be illuminating. So what he's calling us to is a rejection of that lifestyle. I will not be overly preoccupied with the lives of others, but I will be ready to help in the times of need when others have them. Do you see the difference? One seeks to stir up needless controversy and then to find ourselves thoroughly enmeshed in it when we have no place to be. This is not the place for us. This is not the way that God has called us to love our brothers well. Lastly, Paul says to work with your hands. To work with your hands. Now, Paul is largely writing to a group of people that this is what they did. They did work with their hands. And so what he's calling them to is to show up to work on Monday and work hard. Show up again on Tuesday and work hard. Paul offers this word of correction This word of correction and this gospel change that has been affected in their lives. In Ephesians 4 and 28, he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see, the gospel transforms who we are and how we engage. And so what he calls us to is a form of industriousness. You remember when God spoke all things into existence, he said to Adam and to Eve that they are supposed to do two things. Does anybody remember what it is? Be fruitful and multiply. And they're supposed to subdue. He calls them to work. Work is not an aspect of the fall. It's something that that comes before the fall. And what he calls them to do is to work. I think that some of us, what we need to do is to renew our givenness and see our work as a mandate within the gospel. Because Christ has saved us, because he has redeemed us, he calls us to work not for our identity, not that people would praise us, but he calls us to work and to do well at work so that he might receive glory and honor. Listen, maybe you're a single mom, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, you're a stay-at-home dad, maybe you are retired, does not give you an out no longer to work. The Christian life is a life readily, day in and day out, from birth till death, of leaning in and being engaged. What does it look like for you to work? What does it look like for you to labor? What does it look like? Do you have any curiosity of what that could look like if you were to allow the gospel to come in and to infect and to apply your work ethic and the furtherance of the gospel. Why? Why are we doing all these things? You'll remember we began at the idea that if we can't do it right in here, we have no business being out there. Paul ends, he says, the reason you want us you to live quietly, not to be a busybody, the reason I want you working and working hard, is that when those outside see you, they'll have within their minds this thought that you are working rightly. Jesus speaking of those who would come to be his followers in Matthew 5 said, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. There is an evangelistic modality. There's an evangelistic Revelation. There's an evangelistic impact to the degree to which you work and work well. Peter, again, writing these words in 1 Peter 2 and 12, speaking of the same subject. Not 2, oh, 2 and 12. I'm looking at 1 and 12, and I was trying to figure out why I was so incredibly lost. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers... Do you know what it looks like to be spoken against as an evildoer? It looks like posting something and saying, man, I'm really excited that it looks like Roe v. Wade's going to be struck down and your non-Christian friends or your, 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 people, your friends who refer to themselves as Christians but who don't stand for life, they deride you, they hate you, they say awful things about you. They say, oh, why would you possibly step into the middle of this? Do you know what it feels like? Have you had some experience of what it is to be regarded as an evildoer? to call for a biblical understanding of marriage, of sexuality, for responsibleness, for good stewardship, for, 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 for fiscal conservatism. And the people in the world look at you and they say, what's wrong with you? You're a terrible person. You're an evil person. Look at what he goes on to say. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's something evangelistic. There's some facet of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that God sent his son to die on our behalf to take on the penalty and the punishment of our sin, to die, to go into the grave, and to raise three days later so that you and I don't have the sting, the penalty, and the punishment of sin and death. There is something of that revealed to the degree that we love one another well. We have an unhypocritical love. We have a love that hates the sin in our lives and the lives of others. And it's worked out over the course of everything we do. There's something beautiful. There's something that God has orchestrated and worked into the hearts of the unbeliever that makes them ask the question, why? Why are you doing this? But listen, if we can't get it right here, we might as well take off all these green shirts, cancel our activities on the first through the fourth, and stay home. But what I believe is that God is calling us to be mightily impactful in Greenville, Texas. What I believe is that he gives us opportunity to stand for him. What I believe is that if we could be burdened for the lost, and his spirit desperately wants you to be, if we could be burdened for the lost, could we not engage in brotherly love? If we could see is the end goal of all of the things we do, the righteousness, the redemption, the forgiveness of sin for the lost people in our community, would we not find ourselves submitting to that?
listen, we've got time between now and the start of For the City. What does it take for you to get to a place where you're ready to walk in brotherly love? What's it going to take? What's it going to look like for you? And then as you find yourself yielding over to this, are you ready to be impactful in this community? And I got to tell you, I, I hate seeing the devastation of sin in our community. I hate seeing its poverty. I hate seeing it, the drug use. I hate seeing its prostitution, criminal activity, abuse, neglect. See, God has called us to be something particular in here. And being something particular in here, he longs to use us out there. My prayer for us is that our hearts would be at a place in here. That we would bring him glory and honor as he uses us out there. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness. God, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, God, I pray that those of us who have unconfessed sin in our hearts would take seriously your word. God, that we would confess our sins to you, that we would be more concerned with our position before you than we are the appearances that we might have in the eyes and the minds of the people around us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you bring, drink this, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Father, would you lead us in that act of discernment? Would you lead us to know where we stand before you? And God, for those of us that where we come to the understanding of where we stand before you is that we have loved our sin more than we have loved you that we have loved our prized physicians more than we have loved your son Jesus. God, that in these next moments, as the band begins to play, that we would get right before you, that we would confess our sin to you, and that we would begin, even in these next moments, to begin to walk in repentance, walking away from our sin. And Father, we pray for any in this room, in this hearing, who do not know your son Jesus that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would turn to the person beside them, that they would seek out one of the pastors on this staff, that they would go to somebody at the welcome desk and just say simply, I want to know, I want to follow Jesus. Please, please help me. God, would you lead us? Would you stir in our hearts? Would you guide us to love one another well? In having established a right love for one another, would you call us from this place to be impactful in our community? We submit these things to you in your son's name. Amen. Amen.